Father, we pray that you would make us more conscious of your majesty and that we would praise you in accordance with your worth. Amen. That psalm we've just heard read is, of course, a hymn of praise of God. And as such, it is something to be used by us. It's something to guide us in our thinking about God and to aid us in our response to God. And my job this evening, therefore, is simply to help you, help myself, to to do just that. And and what's important for that is that we're all looking at it. Now, I know I always say, please, would you have the passage open in front of you? But I really mean it this evening. Unfortunately, I forgot to go around the church making sure the Bibles were well distributed. But could I urge that you all make sure you've got a Bible open in front of you? They should be underneath uh, the benches in front of you. So if you haven't got one, do get one now, please. And I notice that Peter is hovering at the back. So if anyone doesn't have one and would like one, Peter has them. Oh, yep, yep. Did, no, you're all right there? Right. Okay. Right. Look, before we uh, start the psalm pr- proper, it's probably just worthwhile taking a look at the superscription there. That's the little bit in uh, um, uh, smaller type uh, just after where it says Psalm 8. For the director of music, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. Uh, You may have noticed that the vast majority of the psalms have superscriptions like that. Some of them are very simple. They simply say the type of thing that it is, a psalm, or something like that. Some of them say who the author is. Some of them give a bit of detail about the background to the psalm. Others give musical directions. Well, this one tells us a couple of things. First of all, it says it's a psalm of David. Uh, The word underlying of David could mean it's a psalm to David, it could mean it's a psalm for David, or it could mean it's a psalm by David. However, the same word is used in a lot of other psalms which are very evidently written by David, and so it's overwhelmingly probable that that's what it means here as well. So what we're looking at is a psalm written by David. That's King David, the great king of Israel. Whether before or after the time he became king, of course, we don't know. And then there's something, a a musical direction for the director of music. Could also be translated the choir master, whoever the supremo in the temple was in relation to, to music. And they're told that this is to be according to the Gittith. Now, you're all hoping I'm going to tell you what that means. Um, You're going to be disappointed because we don't know uh, what it means. Uh, There are a lot of educated guesses, but nobody's sure. Probably the most likely thing is it's some kind of direction about the tune or maybe the way in which this is to be sung or perhaps it's an instrument on which it's to be played. But it doesn't really matter, does it? What matters is what the psalm says. So let's take a look at it. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. Let's stop right there before we go on. Do you know this is a hymn addressed to God? 
not all hymns are addressed to God. If you think about the things we sing, some are horizontal, we're addressing one another, some are vertical, addressing God. The Psalms are exactly the same. Uh, the very first psalm, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. That's horizontal. But this one is addressed to God. And note, he's referred to as Lord, capital letters, Lord. What that is, is addressing God by the covenant name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. In the underlying Hebrew, that's just four letters, Y-H-W-H. Written Hebrew in the old days didn't have uh, uh, vowels in it. So we're left to guess how that was pronounced. The the best guess at the moment from scholars is Yahweh. Really, no. What we do know, though, is that's the name that was given by God to Moses at the burning bush, and it's related to the verb to be. Now, do you remember what happened at the burning bush? God spoke to Moses and said he was to go to the Israelites and Moses said well who shall I say has sent me and God said I am who I am and then gave that name Yahweh as a reminder of that when David was addressing God and when we address God we need to remember he's the one who revealed himself as I am who I am in other words God is totally self-sufficient. He's complete in and of himself. He's utterly beyond space and time. God is actually ultimately so different from us that he is beyond our human comprehension. We need to reflect on that. When we say, O God... Addressing the Lord, we need to remember he's Yahweh. He is that self-sufficient God. But David didn't stop by saying, O Lord, did he? He said, O Lord, our Lord. And, And that shows the other side of it. You see, again, let's go back to the burning bush. Yes, here is the God who is infinite being who is the the only uh, uncreated one. And yet he revealed himself to Moses and continued to reveal himself through his prophets and people. He revealed himself to Moses as the one who would relate to his people, to those who would trust in him. And, And that's why David was able to refer to him both as the majestic God beyond comprehension And yet, his Lord, our Lord. And we, of course, can do the same thing. When we address God, we need to remember both sides of that. That he is utterly beyond our our experience, beyond our being. And yet, to those who trust in him, he is our Lord. And if you reflect on that fact alone you begin to sense the, the marvel of God. That God would reveal himself to us. It is quite remarkable. We take it for granted. We shouldn't. But, but, but it is remarkable. And it's no surprise, therefore, that David goes straight on, O Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth? Of course, when he talks about the name of God, he doesn't literally mean the name. He's referring to God himself. It's rather like if you see a list of, I don't know, famous footballers. You might read it and say, oh, there are some great names in there. You're not referring to the names, are you? You're referring to the footballers. What's being said here is how majestic, how magnificent, how excellent, how wonderful is God in all the earth, as, as he puts it here. Now, it would be quite interesting, though we don't have time, just to talk about that and reflect on the ways in which God's majesty, God's, God's excellence is revealed in the world. Uh, and by the way, I do suggest when you go home you use this psalm and, and reflect on that. I suspect we'd come up with an awful lot of, of different things. But, but for today, let's just focus on the things that uh, David reflected on. End of verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. That's back to thinking about the majesty of God. God isn't contained in the universe. That's the pantheistic fallacy. God isn't contained in the universe. He's not constrained by the universe. He's infinitely beyond it. Uh, Do you remember when King King Solomon dedicated the original temple? He recognised that in one sense it was the house of God. It was to be the symbol of God's presence among his people. But he knew that in reality... God wasn't constrained there. He said, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. Now, of course, they can't. I think that's something which I I certainly found it difficult to get my my head around. Uh, About 30 years ago, I read the uh, Confessions of St. Augustine of Hippo, the great 5th century theologian, perhaps the greatest theologian in the history of the church. Uh, and, and in the middle of that, actually towards the end, there, there is a, a series of reflections uh, on Genesis chapter 1. And as I was reading it, I just realised that Augustine's conception of God was far bigger than mine, and it caused me to reflect on my conception of God. And I realised that my conception was of, of Superman. And, and actually, God isn't Superman. God is utterly greater than that. He's utterly other. His glory is above the heavens. And yet, verse 2. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. You see, we've gone again from this infinite majesty above the heavens down to children. The word translated there, praise, literally is strength. It means strength or a bulwark or or, or a fortress. So what it literally says is, from the lips of children and infants, you've established a bulwark because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. You may say, well, if that's what it says, why do our Bibles translate it praise? But but there is a reason. Well, there are two reasons, actually. The first is that uh, the ancient uh, Greek translation of the Bible, the pre-Christian Greek translation, the Septuagint, uses the word praise here. And Jesus, when quoting this psalm, also used the word praise. 
And the reason is this. Uh, When you think about it, what is being said here is that from the lips of children, from things said by children, God is establishing a, a, a thing, a fortress, which, which silences, which puts to shame people who mock or oppose God. It's also stressing that uh, God uses weak things to defeat strong things, weak people to defeat strong people. In the autumn, we're going to be looking at the first book of Samuel. Uh, I've been preparing for that, and I must say I've got tremendously excited uh, by it. But but it time and again talks about this idea of God reversing the fortunes of the world. Uh, Another good example of that is provided by the incident which led to Jesus quoting this passage. It happened in the last week of his life. He was in the temple. He had just driven out the money changers. And we're told that the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Uh, This is in Matthew chapter 21. I don't suggest you look it up now. And it says this. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. You see, the children were responding appropriately to what they saw happening in front of them. And their praise uh, rendered these Pharisees speechless. They were indignant. God used the children to show the appropriate response in contrast to the inappropriate response of the teachers and religious people of his day. Do you see what's happening? you see what... what, uh, David's saying here this is the God who has set his glory above the heavens and yet he chooses to work out his purposes through infants he chose it in time of Jesus to have the children singing those things in the temple and revealing who Jesus really was but we don't need to go as far as children think about ourselves because before God we are merely children indeed as the Bible says, we're like grasshoppers before God. And yet God chooses to work out his purposes through us. I know I've said that innumerable times in this church, but it never ceases to amaze me. It, it, it strikes me as astonishing that the God of all the universe should choose to work through us. But he does. That is truly amazing. And it leads on to the next point. Look at verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? The stars were a source of constant wonder to ancient people. And when I was a child, they were a source of great wonder to me as well. I lived right on the edge of a town south of London. And the result was that uh, two-thirds of the sky had very good viewing for stars. One-third was in the direction of London. 
I prevailed upon my parents to buy me a little telescope. And I spent hours looking at the stars uh, with all my charts and things, looking up at double stars and supernovae and all sorts of former ones and all sorts of things. And I used to reflect and I was awestruck by what I was looking at. Uh, Of course, the ancient people drew the wrong conclusion very often from that because they worshipped the sun and moon and stars. The very sad thing is they got the wonder, but they failed to see what it was all pointing to. They worshipped the created order, not the creator. David didn't. David said that they are God's heavens, your heavens, the work of your fingers. The sun and moon, all this may be magnificent, but they're just the work of God's hands. I I lament very often that we here in London can hardly see the stars, though I see Nigel Freestone sitting there. And by the way, you may be able to prevail on him to let you have a little peep through his telescope at some point. And I can assure you, even in London, there are some fascinating things that you can see. But you don't need to do that to get that same sense of the majesty of God's creation. We can reflect on that through everyday things. Um, Sorry, I've just knocked my microphone off. I do apologise. I was just going to go and get my mobile phone out, actually. Perhaps I'd better not. Um, when, you, when you use one of these things, just reflect on the amazing nature of electromagnetic radiation. Just think about it. We are able to speak to someone on the other side of the world. We're able to see people on the other side of the world. David, of course, had no conception that there was electromagnetic radiation all around him, that there were radio waves that could be used to speak to people. But there was. It's been there since the dawn of creation. And just like the sun, moon and stars, it is the work of God's fingers. Well, let's think about something more, I was going to say prosaic, I'm not sure it is, Uh, uh, water. Uh, Two to three weeks ago, the heath out there was completely brown, wasn't it? I remember walking across the heath on one Saturday evening and there wasn't a blade of green grass there. But that night, there was a whole lot of rain, violent thunderstorms, in, in fact. And when I walked across early the following morning, there was a green haze across the heath. And when I returned a couple of hours later... There was distinct green all across the heath. It was amazing. When I consider the work of your hands, the work of your fingers, and none of this is in any way diminished by the discoveries of modern astrophysics and electromagnetic research or the fact that we know that water comprises two hydrogen molecules and one oxygen molecule. In fact, that rather increases the wonder, doesn't it? No, all of this should cause us to reflect on the majesty of the God who made it all. But oddly enough, that's not what David is primarily reflecting on here. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, he doesn't say, I'm amazed. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. We're back to this great theme of the psalm, that this majestic God 
cares for us. Uh, Isaiah uh, said this. Uh, he, he quotes God as saying that he is the Lord who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who says to Zion, you are my people. Zion being the congregation of God's people. We're back to that idea of, O oh Lord, our Lord. The God who did all of this creation, yet cares for us, is mindful of us. That really is remarkable, isn't it? I don't know if you noticed in verse 4, it refers to the Son of Man. Uh, That's simply a poetic way of referring to to people. Uh, In fact, verse 4 is a classic example of the Hebrew parallelism which you see in the Psalms time and time and time again. In this case, the parallelism is that the second line repeats the meaning of the first line just using different language. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. It brings out the meaning. Although... Nonetheless, in the light of the New Testament, the use of that phrase, the Son of Man, does take on a slightly additional significance. We'll come back to that in a moment. But for the moment, uh, let's just read on. Verse 5. You made him, that's mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. What David's saying is that God created human beings A little lower than the angels. That probably means uh, for a little while lower than the angels. He crowned us with glory and honour. We're told that we've been made in the image of God. I haven't time to go into the detail of that now, but let's just mention a couple of things which arise out of what we've already been thinking about. Uh, Of all God's created beings, of all God's creatures, we are the only ones who can comprehend the wonder of God's creation, and that's uh, imperfectly. Uh, And we are the only ones who have the ability, the God-given creative ability, to realise the potential of that creation. Again, albeit imperfectly. And then we're told that God made us the rulers over the works of his hands, That, of course, takes us right back to the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, where we read this. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Just think about it for a moment. I know we take all of this for granted, but it is extraordinary. That's, that's how God ordered the world, and that's how it is. I'm sure if we do reflect on that, we will slowly feel we understand less of it, oddly enough, rather than more of it. As soon as you remove that assumption that everything has to be as it is, and begin to recognise that that was a choice of God, you began to begin to reflect on the majesty and awesome nature 
of, uh, of God. On the other hand, I can imagine some of you doing that and saying, yeah, it is amazing. It is tremendous. But somehow I feel there ought to be something slightly more. It's not quite right, is it? Yeah, we're made a little lower than the angels, but we are lower than the angels. Yeah, God, God has sort of crowned us with glory and honour. But it's pretty marred, isn't it? It's, it's far from perfect. You know, sin is in this world. And, yeah, we sort of rule over the earth. Yeah, I, I can see that. But it's far from a perfect rule. And, and actually, do we really rule over the whole of creation? That's quite a big statement. Now, if you do think that, you are in excellent company. Because you're in the company of the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. So the Bible too makes that comment. Again, look it up afterwards. But this is Hebrews chapter 2 verse 6. I'm reading through to verse 9. The writer says that there is a place where someone has testified. Somewhat extraordinary way of referring to David's authorship of Psalm uh, Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. And the writer goes on. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we don't see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might might taste death for everyone. You see, what David was saying is true, and it's wonderful. We have been created a little lower than the angels. He has given us honour and glory. He has made us to rule over his creation. That is true, And it's marvellous, but it's not the whole truth. There's something more. You see, Jesus was not only holy God, fully God. He was fully man as well. Perfect man. His favourite title for himself was the Son of Man. That phrase used in verse 4. He was the ultimate man. And in him... What David was saying about God's purposes for people was perfectly realised. You see, we talk about Jesus revealing the glory of God, and so he did. But equally, he revealed the glory that God has given human beings perfectly. And what the Bible tells us is, through faith in Jesus... We can make ourselves participants in that. We can actually be joined with Jesus so that ultimately we will see realised in ourselves those things which David wrote about and which are at the moment only imperfectly realised in us. That brings us back for for the final time to this whole idea of... God being majestic and above all things and yet intimate and with us. God is the Lord, the Lord 
Yahweh. The self-sufficient God, complete in and of himself. Far separate, totally above all created things outside space and time. Ultimately incomprehensible by us. And yet he's also our Lord. The one who revealed himself to Moses, who revealed himself to, to people through the ages. And who is mindful of us, who cares for us. And has shown that care preeminently in sending Jesus so that through faith in him we can be participators in the final fulfilment of all this about being crowned with all honour and glory and ruling over the whole of God's creation. Of course, David didn't see the detail of that, but he knew the principles. David understood clearly about the both the transcendence and the imminence of God and saw in both God's majesty. And that's why he ends his psalm in the same way as he began it. Began it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.